Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. We've mentioned many times how important how we treat our body is, how important lifestyle choices are, and particularly how important nutrition is. Many have said on this show that nutrition is very important for wellness and is also our best defense against any virus, uh, is having a healthy immune system, which requires good nutrition. Many in the U.S. and perhaps other Western countries are deficient in very important vitamins such as vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin A. There are a lot of other nutritional factors that are important. Uh, We are what we eat, so let's learn more. Today we have Margaret Moss, who uh, is an expert in these areas. She has a Master's of Arts in Maths and Logic from Cambridge University in Britain. She trained to teach the deaf at Manchester University and is taught in Kenya, Zimbabwe, and England. She was the head of two boarding schools, high schools in Kenya, and the deputy head of a large school for the deaf in Zimbabwe. She's trained as a nutrition consultant at the Pioneering Institute for Optimal Nutrition in London. She's investigated the causes of coronary heart disease, cancer, multiple sclerosis, and biochemical issues such as chronic fatigue, autism, fibromyalgia, and other chronic conditions. She's investigated nutritional deficiencies caused by many drugs. She's published her original research in The Lancet, the International Journal of Cardiology, and the Journal of Nutritional Environmental Medicine. That is very impressive. She's written many articles for the public. She's lectured to doctors, healthcare workers, students, and given talks in schools, colleges, and to the public. She has broadcast on various TV and radio stations in Zimbabwe and Britain, and she runs an international nutrition clinic mainly for those with complex chronic problems. She sees clients in person and on Zoom and on Skype, and she provides individually tailored advice. Uh, The motto of her clinic is science and compassion. So she sounds like an excellent resource. So welcome, Margaret. Hello. So I'd like to hear about your history, your path, and, you know, the forming of your clinic and why you chose the name of the Nutrition and Allergy Clinic. I had major chronic problems myself, and I was very lucky eventually to find excellent people like the immunologist, Dr. David Freed, and the toxicologist, Dr. Rosemary Waring. And it seemed to me that the right name for the clinic was Nutrition and Allergy Clinic, because on the one hand, we need to give the body everything it needs, that's the nutrition side, and on the other, we need to avoid all the harmful things to the body, things you're allergic to, or the things that are just plain toxic and bad for everybody. So the name of the clinic reflects that to the two sides. If all you do is give the body what it needs, that's not enough. If all you do is take away the things that upset you, that's not enough. You need both approaches together. 
That is so important because there's so many what we would call toxins in our environment, and it's not one in particular because the the authorities would say a little bit of this and a little bit of that won't hurt us, and our body can detox overnight and recuperate, but the big toxic soup with so many of these different toxics challenging us and they're synergistic, it is so important. I mean, some of our speakers have said we can't get well until we get rid of some of these toxins, such heavy metals, etc. So is that what you found? Living in a society where so many experiments are being made on humanity all at once, we've the uh, 5G, we have, uh, you know, all the toxic metals, but all the toxic organic chemicals. Since the Second World War, the production of these chemicals has grown exponentially. And all these things have an effect on people. We can't even isolate what each one does because the world has changed so much in so many ways all at once. And we see particular problems in our children. When did we ever have so many special educational needs that we now have? But we are, we are poisoning our children. And the earth is no longer as good as it was because we use a lot of fertilizers which only give certain minerals and completely ignore the others. So we, we can grow lots and lots of food, but it's not got the value in it that the food had before the Second World War. So humanity is facing huge challenges. That is so true. I mean, the nutritional value of take a carrot or anything has decreased so rapidly uh, in last decades. Uh, the, uh, the nutritional strength of our soil is depleted when, with monocrops continually replanted. Uh, we wear out the nutrition of our soils. This is so important. And uh, it's important that we, you know, find a way to detoxify to get many of these to avoid many of these chemicals, uh, many of whom we, we don't even know about, and that we try to remove them as best we can. And it's not just one thing working on its own. You eat one carrot, it might have five different pesticides in it. You eat a melon, it might have seven pesticides. And these are not additive, they multiply together. Again, there I went to see a man one time. He was on 29 different prescription drugs. Nobody in the world knows how all these drugs and all these pesticides and all these other things interact with one another to harm us. Oh, that is so true. Like for glyphosate, like uh, EMF, I mean, it interferes with the way cells communicate with each other. It opens up the very important gut barrier. It opens up the blood-brain barrier. I mean, in glyphosate, Glyphosate will interfere with detox pathways and interferes with the shikimate pathway, which means we won't make tertiary amines such as serotonin and tryptophan. I mean, uh, and, and most people, there's a lot of glyphosate in their blood, but more important is that our children are sicker than ever. I mean, in the U.S., it used to be maybe 18% of our children have a chronic disease. Now it's 58%, and the age of optimal health is now 29, and then from there on, it's downhill. This has never happened before. It used to be assumed that people would live longer and longer. It's not happening. Um, in Here in Britain, old women are now living less long than their predecessors. Uh, the men are still living longer, but 
the rate of increase has reduced, you can see they're going to start coming down again. And the other thing is the huge increase in sugar consumption in the West, and this is largely down to the false information given against fats. If you took the fats out of the food, the manufacturers put the sugar in, because otherwise they wouldn't sell them. It is so important because bad fats, vegetable oils, and heavily processed fats are a huge problem for our health. I mean, sugar, yes, it's a problem, but some people say it's the fats, the poor, the vegetable oils, the overprocessed fats, it's the issue. And I just talked to somebody the other day who had a major breakfast cereal company call her, and she didn't want to talk to them. But they, what the what the man said is, before before you say anything, I want to admit we use damaged sugars, we use damaged. Uh, starches so we can make the cereals do a little curly cues. We have as much sugar as we can and we market to children. I mean, he said that like within a minute and admitted it. Wow. Well, cancer is more associated with sugar than anything else. Yeah. Because fructose in the sugar enables the cancer cells to make more cancer cells. And when you make more cancer cells, you get bigger lumps or the cells... Uh, move off, migrate to other parts of the body and set up new tumors. Yes, we've had some speakers, many speakers speak on that. That's very important. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so you carried out research into food as a cause of disease. So what connections have you found between foods and different diseases? Well, the cancer sugar one is there, but even more dramatic is the connection between milk and heart disease, coronary heart disease. It's around the 0.9 correlation. That is huge. And we've looked at it in different age groups, different sexes, and we've looked at the reasons. Now, milk sugar splits into glucose and galactose, and galactose is quite toxic. And... Whereas a child with high galactose is terribly handicapped, that child might be very, very tiny, not a, not a mini child, but a micro child, may be deaf, may have learning difficulties. Those children are spotted early on, but coronary heart disease seems to be a much slower kind of poisoning by galactose. Also with coronary heart disease, you have uh, globules fatty globules in the water of the milk and around each globule is a membrane and there's something in that membrane that causes the platelets to clump together and clot, cause clots and also that milk fat globule membrane has to do with affecting the natural killer cells uh, and there's, there are cells which protect you from things like cancer. So the connection between milk and heart disease is enormous. But people are being told, worry about your cholesterol. It's not the cholesterol. It may well be that the milk causes oxidation and the oxidation damages the cholesterol. So there may be a connection. But um, it's not milk fat that's the issue. It's these membranes around the fatty globules and it's the sugar in milk. Uh, multiple sclerosis, again, we saw a connection with both milk and sugar. 
And it's interesting that multiple sclerosis was reported in the past to go into a community when cocoa went into the community. But I can't help wondering whether it's the sugar the cocoa is cooked with to make the chocolate that actually is to do with why there's so much MS. MS also is very common a long way from the equator. I don't remember in Africa ever meeting anyone with MS, but once you go into northern Canada, northern Scotland, the further you go from the equator, the less vitamin D you're getting from the sun, and the more you have autoimmune diseases of all sorts, and in particular multiple sclerosis. This again has to do with sugar, to do with the fructose in the sugar, because if you have bacteria in the gut called sulfate-reducing bacteria, they love fructose as their fuel, and they rip the oxygen from the sulfate to make sulfide. The oxygen then is used with the fructose fuel to make energy for these bacteria, and the sulfide rips at the wall of the gut. You end up with ulcerative colitis, or if you're worse off, you end up with colon cancer. Wow. Does it matter what kind of milk? Raw milk? I mean, is skim milk worse, or it's just the fat globules, and it doesn't matter what kind of milk? Some people have thought that homogenizing milk was a bad thing, that it broke up the fat, um, the membranes of these globules and that that maybe made them more harmful, but we don't know whether that is true. Um, the, this high correlation between milk consumption and heart disease goes back, in this country certainly, to before we homogenize milk. Uh, but the sugar in the milk may well be the biggest thing, or it may well be that the sugar um, narrows the arteries and then the Membranes around the globules cause the clotting, and the two things together cause the greatest problem. Also, milk, nutritionally, yes, it, it's what gets the cow standing up, the calf standing up when it's born, uh, because otherwise somebody may come and eat it, something may eat it. But there's not a lot of magnesium in milk, and magnesium is very important for preventing clotting. So, um, nutritionally, yes, it's what the calf needs at that time, but it's not really what the adult human being needs. Another thing it's about magnesium is sugar requires a lot of magnesium just to digest it, and it uses up a lot of nutrients, which could deplete us even further. However, cheese doesn't have this high association with coronary heart disease, when you make cheese, you get rid of the sugar, at least when you make the hard cheese. So that may be a big point. But also, when you ferment it, you're producing vitamin K2, and vitamin K2 uh, takes that um, calcium out of the cheese where it's not wanted and puts it in the bone where we need it. So it may well be that cheese is good because of the vitamin K2. Certainly the French paradox is nonsense. They talk about how come the French eat all this fat and they don't have a lot of heart disease. Well, first of all, fat is not the cause of heart disease. Uh, but secondly, they, they don't have that much liquid milk. 
They eat lots of butter and cheese, neither of which is full of sugar. Also, it might be that there's more community and they're eating together. So there's, you know, the community, oxytocin, and that might be very healthy as well. So they tend to eat slowly. If you eat with French people, they'll have a long time for a meal where they are talking to one another. They're not gobbling it down fast, and that may have something to do with how they cope with the food. Yeah. So would kefir or fermented milk be okay? I think we don't know enough about yogurt and kefir and things like that. Um, there should be some vitamin K2 in because they're fermented. Um, the bacteria will have used some of the sugar. Uh, personally, I do use, I use goat yogurt. Um, I think the big problem is those bottles of liquid milk and all the things that it's in. I mean, all the powdered milk and that goes into commercial foods. You know, you buy some uh, packet soup, it will have milk powder in. And probably, again, you'll oxidize the cholesterol when you freeze it and you keep it for a long time. So that may have to do with why there's a problem. Do you know, even in vodka, there's often milk because it's used to clarify it. There are huge numbers of foods that have hidden milk in that people are not aware of. If you ask them, how much milk do you have a day? They'll say, oh, very little, just a little drop in the coffee. But, ah, but what about the custard tart you ate or the custard on your pudding? What, what about the sausages with the milk powder in? You know, it's everywhere. And people are not aware of it. And they don't think it matters. So are you saying that goat milk uh, might be a little more friendly for the human system? Not necessarily. If you've been brought up on cow milk, you very likely have built up some problem with the cow milk. And you may be better with goats. And I think that's the case for me. On the other hand, one time I visited somewhere where they kept goats for milk, and I found a a bottle of cow milk on the doorstep. And I thought this was a little strange. They said because their child was brought up on goat milk, because they kept goats, um, the child was so ill, had developed such a terrible allergy to it, they thought he had cancer. And they actually switched him to cow and he was okay. So I think when, when you're very small, you have lots and lots of milk compared with your size. It's, it's your one food. And you're liable to develop allergies to it or sensitivity to it. And switching to another animal may well help, at least for a time. They find with babies, if you switch them from cow milk to goat, uh, they're okay for a bit. And then maybe they become allergic to goat milk as well. But by that time, they're big enough. They don't need to be drinking milk. So I assume that you uh, mother's milk is a perfect combination for the infant. Yes, indeed. We should be feeding our babies on mother's milk. We shouldn't be feeding them on stuff out of tins. And again, that's liable to be oxidized. How long, how long is that dried milk powder kept? 
Yes, and oxidized food can cause oxidation and inflammation in the body, which can trigger the pathway toward any chronic disease. So this is very important. So, wow. I, uh, but also, cholesterol itself is good stuff, and we need it, especially for the brain. But once it's oxidized, then it's trouble. Then it yes. causes artery deposits. We need cholesterol for all of our hormones, for cell walls. It's, you know, for the neurons in the brain. It's so important. It's one of the good guys. And having low cholesterol puts us at risk for diseases as well. Old people with low cholesterol live less long. The higher your cholesterol as an old person, the better off you are. But it doesn't want to be oxidized cholesterol. It wants to be good, clean cholesterol. Yeah, I've been reading that the risk for heart disease is connected with the amount and number of the very small LDL particles and the endothelial dysfunction rather than the other cholesterol numbers. Well, the other thing is the ratio does matter because HDL carries an enzyme called peroxinase, which protects the LDL from oxidation. So you need enough HDL to keep your LDL in good shape. So the ratio is the one thing that matters on that test. And your triglycerides matter because they are um, a reflection of how much sugar you have. Okay. So tell us about fats. There are good fats and there are unhealthy fats. So help us with this. Right. There are essential fatty acids. And there are two families, omega-3 and omega-6. And you have a primary form, and you have a, have more sophisticated forms. So, for instance, with the omega-3 fats, the primary, the basic form is ALA, which you'll get in flax oil, for instance. You get it in leaves, but not very much of it. And it needs to be processed using a lot of vitamins and minerals to make EPA, which is anti-inflammatory, and DHA, which is to do with the structure of the brain. So the big problem is a lot of people haven't got those vitamins and minerals in enough quantity to do that processing, in which case there's a lot to be said for eating fish because the fish has done all the work for you. Again, so long as the fish you eat is not full of mercury and other nasty chemicals. You only process a small amount of the ALA. We really aren't very clever at it. Now, you then have the omega-6 fats, which come from nuts and seeds. They are also essential to life. People who are atopic, the sort of typical, very allergic sort of person, they're often very poor at the very first stage of processing the omega-3 ALA and the omega-6 LA. And for them, they need help. If you give them evening primrose oil, you've jumped that first stage of the omega-6 pathway. The other thing is that the omega-3s get precedence over this. Omega-3 is so important to the human body, the body gives it precedence. And if it cannot process all the ALA it needs to, it's just not going to waste its time with the LA. And then your omega-6 fats won't be properly processed. Now, when you process these fats, you get things called prostaglandins. Series 1 and Series 2 come from the omega-6, 
and series three come from the omega-3 and you need all of them. But so many people today have lots and lots of omega-6, tons of sunflower oil, for instance, and uh, not enough of the omega-3. But you don't want to go the other way either. You need both, a reasonable amount of both. And you, you want good quality oil. You don't want cheap oil that's been oxidized. You don't want sunflower oil that's gone through deodorization, heating, all sorts of processes to form that tasteless stuff at the supermarket. Now, those are essential fatty acids, but there are other important fats, butyric, lauric, amyristic acid. And we get them from butter and ghee and from coconut oil or from eating coconuts. They are saturated fats and they are essential. Without them, we have a leaky gut. Our food gets through from the gut into the bloodstream before it's properly broken down and then we're in real trouble. So don't believe that all saturated fats are bad. Those saturated fats are important. And people will come to me complaining of leaky guts, and then I realize they don't have any fats that would prevent the gut from being leaky. I also have people coming to me with eczema, and you'll find they're on low-fat diets. Alternatively, you find they're using lots of shower gel, which just takes the fat out of the skin, so no wonder they have eczema. You know, most of the skin doesn't need washing with anything other than water. But your hands need to be washed with some soap for hygiene purposes. You don't need to slather yourself with shower gel, which will take those healthy fats out of your skin and leave your skin dry and subject to infection. Wow, that is interesting about the shower gels. Uh I suspect I, I wouldn't want to use a chemical on me anyway, but that is interesting. I'm glad to hear that butter and ghee, and I, uh, are, we can use those. But what other oils, in addition to coconut oil, extra virgin olive oil, what about avocado oil, although a lot of it has impurities in it? Personally, I don't use runny oils. I reckon to get enough omega-6 from eating some nuts and seeds. Um and within the nut or the seed, it's well protected. Once it's in a bottle, it's not. And very often people keep bottled oil in a cupboard, not in the fridge, or lying on the work surface somewhere. Um, and it's all become oxidized before they even eat it. And really bad fats, supposing you have potato chips, that oil is heated all day long, potatoes are put in and taken out, more potatoes are put in and taken out, more potatoes are put in and taken out, and the oil sticks there, and it's heated all day long, and it becomes really nasty. Yeah. If you want to fry, personally I don't fry, but if you want to, if you want to roast, I do roast, use butter or ghee or coconut oil that doesn't mind that high heat. Yes, because I understand olive oil does not tolerate high heat. And also, I'm told you can't really put olive oil in a refrigerator. If you put it in a refrigerator and the fridge is really cold, then it will be difficult to pour. 
Um, there is a problem with olive oil for some people. I, I see a lot of people with chronic problems like migraine, IBS, depression, um, arthritis, and so on. Uh, sometimes neurological problems like uh, multiple sclerosis, motor neurone disease. For that subgroup of the population, they don't cope with a lot of phenols, and there's a lot of phenol in olive oil. There are two groups in the population. They're the normal people, where normal public health advice may be relevant, and there are the other people, the people with the migraines and the rheumatoid arthritis and the autism and so on, who are very different. And the advice for one is completely wrong for the other group. And so for the migraineurs, et cetera, don't use the olive oil. So people with autoimmune diseases in general should uh, be careful with olive oil? I would say so, yes. And the other thing they should be careful with is lectins. Uh, lectins come in nuts and seeds, and they are particularly in the outside layer, the brown layer of the seed. So, for instance, people often have problems with wholemeal bread, but they can eat the white stuff, or they certainly can't eat the brown. They can maybe eat nuts like macadamias that don't have skins on, but they have problems with, um, say, the walnuts. Uh, often in autoimmune diseases, uh, lectins are a problem. We know in rheumatoid arthritis, um, there's a particular problem with whole wheat. And people with rheumatoid arthritis definitely shouldn't have wholemeal bread or bran. They may have difficulty even with a smaller amount of lectin in the refined grain. So uh, how can we tell if we have problems with lectins? Uh, you know, just uh, remove these things temporarily to test it? Well, if people have, say, IBS, or they have autoimmune disease, uh, or, um, yes, arthritis, chances are lectins are a problem for them, and it would be well worth cutting right back on lectins. Uh, even potatoes, carrots, they're seeds, so you need to peel them if you have these problems. Oh, wow. Lectins yeah. are called lectins, but it comes from the Latin, lego, which means either I read or I choose. So you read from a lectin, you select um, something in the shop, you elect your president because you choose. Now, lectins choose very specific sugars. So, for instance, um, in rheumatoid arthritis, you have a problem because the wheat lectin attaches to something called N-acetoglucosamine, which is all over the place in your body. Uh, this can also be a problem with autoimmune kidney disease. So it's a matter of knowing which lectins attach to which sugars, which, which foods have which lectins and so on. It, it's not a simple matter. And some of the popular literature about lectins is full of errors. Wow. Is gluten a problem for most people, some people, or all people? 
Is it gluten or is it the wheat lectin? I suspect it's the lectin that's really the issue. Um, I don't think the immunological problem is for everybody. Um, I mean, a lot of people are affected by wheat, but part of that is that it's not properly processed. Our ancestors knew very well that in cold places, and I live in Britain, which is cold, usually, uh, you can grow wheat. So you can feed the population, you can fill people up with wheat. That's why we grow it, not because it's necessarily a very good food. But our ancestors knew the first thing you do with it is take the outside off and throw it to the pigs and chickens. And the second thing you do is you ferment it slowly to make sourdough bread or in Italy to make ciabatta. Um, now what has happened, uh, Kellogg's and other people of that vintage had this idea that you had to eat everything whole and that's still a popular idea. And then the Chorleywood process was invented a few decades ago, which means you can make bread very fast and therefore you can make a bigger profit for your bakery. And both of those have led to bad quality bread, which causes a lot of trouble with people. Uh, and of course, if you make a cake you're not, or a biscuit, you're not fermenting the wheat. So that's going to be much more of a problem. Also, some people think that wheat's a problem when actually it's the sugar in the wheat product that's the problem. Or the jam that they put on top of the jelly they put on top of the toast, for instance. So it's quite complicated. Wow. What about sourdough bread? So uh, since it's been fermented a little bit, would that be a better option? Much better. I only use sourdough bread and ciabatta. I don't use any fast cooked bread. Oh, that sounds good. Um, well, you work with food allergies, intolerance, and sensitivities. What are the what is the difference? Food allergy. Well, first of all, in the 1920s, the name was coined for any adverse effect to something which wouldn't bother most people, at least not in that quantity. But then in the 1960s, they discovered something called IgE, an antibody that's involved in these very rapid, dangerous allergic reactions. And then the doctors decided that that was all allergy was and nothing else existed. So I only keep allergy as a word to use for immunological reactions. Uh, you have certainly very specific intolerance issues. Uh, I'm fructose intolerant. I cannot process fructose. I get stuck in my body. I haven't got an enzyme that would deal with it. And therefore, fructose causes, would cause me a lot of problem if I ate it. Uh, there's lactose intolerance, which is quite different. That's very common, particularly in dark-skinned people, and it involves an inability to break the double sugar lactose down into two single sugars, glucose and galactose. It's actually quite a good thing if it stops people drinking milk. And the last thing you want to do is process the milk with an enzyme that do, does that for you, because then you've got all this galactose to deal with. 
Um, there's also fructose malabsorption. People nowadays have so much sugar that they can't move it from the gut into the bloodstream. They don't have enough carrying capacity to do that. Well, why should we? We evolved in the Stone Age, and what sugar did we have? A bit on fruits in autumn, but nobody had plant bred them to be sweet like they are today. Very occasionally finding some honey. Um, so really, we just don't have much of that capacity. And really, nutritional advice should be about finding what is the correct advice for the individual. If you think about it, we have different genes. It's very important that we do. If we were clones with the same genes and something came along, whether it's COVID or whatever, it might kill a lot of us. But because we're all different, we survive challenges, most of us. So we're all different, but therefore we need different food. And if you buy a car, the manual will tell you what fuel to put in it. If you buy a washing machine, it will tell you what to do. But unfortunately, babies are born without manuals. And a lot of my job is trying to find out what that individual's manual would have told them to do if only someone had written it for them. Interesting. Um, what about non-gluten-free breads? I imagine they have the same problems with lectins as the gluten breads. Well, very often gluten-free wheat bread has had the, a lot of the lectin removed from it. And that's not necessarily true of some of the other things. A lot of the free-from-food is full of sugar. Um, and uh, they use nasty ingredients like carrageenan. You know, if you make bread with a gluten grain, the bread holds together when you cut it. If you make bread with something like maize, the temp tendency is that when you try to cut a slice, it all falls apart. So they put in carrageenan, which is a really nasty chemical, to hold it together. So by all means, cook gluten-free food from scratch at home. Much of the world lives gluten-free. After all, they live on rice. They live on maize. Um, high up in the north, they live on fish. Um, but you want to use just plain rice, plain um, buckwheat, buckwheat's nice, plain maize, potato, whatever, for your cooking, rather than going to a supermarket and buying some manufactured free-from stuff. Okay. Um, you had mentioned side effects from different drugs. What do your investigations tell you about uh, the side effects from different drugs? Uh, I wrote an article with 160 drugs, all of which caused nutritional deficiencies, in some cases, many nutritional deficiencies. I mean, a really key one is the statin drugs, which produce a deficiency of coenzyme Q10. And we cannot make any energy in any cell of the body without coenzyme Q10. Why on earth would you take a drug that stopped you doing that? But that's only one example. And um, the proton pump inhibitors people take because they feel their stomachs are too acidic, um, they affect your absorption of carotene, of minerals, B12. So if you take lots of drugs and each drug gives you lots of deficiencies, of course you're going to get side effects. 
I've tried telling my doctors this on the statins and the PPIs, and uh, I, they were very dismissive. So. Oh. Um, a GP here, a um, general practice doctor, said to me to take a statin. And I said, um, actually, I don't think it's a good idea to block my mevalinate pathway. That's what they do. And I don't suppose he knew what I was talking about, but he dropped the subject. It's something your body has to keep you healthy, and you block it at your peril. It was like when I, I told neurologist, uh, uh, it won't affect my lipoprotein A, which is the reason my cholesterol is normal. So your drug won't touch that. And he just said, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, my doctor didn't even ask me what my mevalinate pathway was. So I tell my clients, just, just use that little form of words and saying you don't want to block your mevalinate pathway. And, and I think your doctor will leave you alone. Well, I just walked out. I just refused to return. He didn't know what lipoprotein A was, and statins won't touch it. And my cholesterol was normal. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, they keep lowering the level that they call normal in order to try and make people look abnormal. Yeah. Um, the, the lower the level that is permitted, the more people will be on drugs and the more money the drug companies will have. Um, this is not the way to do medicine, is it? No, we're not treating symptoms. We're not treating a statin deficiency. We're not treating a Prozac deficiency. As you say, we're treating the individual. It's not one size fits all. It's very individualistic, and we have to find out what's going on under the hood for each individual. Absolutely. Um, inflammation has been cited as a trigger, uh, a starting path for most diseases leading to oxidative stress, etc. So how can we reduce inflammation? Obviously, diet is one way, but what are other ways we can reduce inflammation? Well, one of them is with sulfate. If you bath in Epsom salts, which is magnesium sulfate, the sulfate will detoxify amines, including histamine. Another thing is we have methylation, we add methyl groups from things like um, what we call beetroot. I think you just call them beets. Uh, and um, you stick this methyl group onto your histamine or whatever, and you need magnesium in this process. You need folate that comes from foliage, comes from eating vegetables. Uh, and I just had someone come to see me who doesn't eat vegetables. Um, in fact, some of the vegetarians don't eat vegetables, and it seems to me it's a totally wrong name to give them if they don't eat vegetables. Uh, vitamin B12, which comes from animal products, that's important in methylation. And some people switch to being vegans and don't realize that... They have to take vitamin B12 or terrible things can happen to their nervous system. Uh, if you live in a poor country where the water isn't treated and you're drinking bacteria in your water supply, you're getting some vitamin B12. But if you've got chlorinated water to save you from nasty infections, which makes sense, uh, you've just got to get some B12 from somewhere. Then the balance between the omega-3 and 6 fatty acids is important. The 3 is anti-inflammatory, and the series 1 prostaglandins from the 6s 
anti-inflammatory. The um, series 2 prostaglandins from the omega-6s are pro-inflammatory. Now, why does the body make things to cause inflammation? Well, for very good reason. If you catch an infection, you want to have inflammation because inflammation will fight that infection, but you don't want to be inflamed all day long every day. So you need a really good balance between these things. And then there's vitamin D. And people are told don't go out in the sunshine and put all this sunblock on. But we need the vitamin D from the sun or from capsules if we can't get it from the sun, but ideally from the sun. Uh, because vitamin D helps the T regulatory cells regulate the immune system. Now, with COVID, you hear about the cytokine storm, that when people have got rid of the virus, their immune system is still inflamed, becomes perhaps dangerously inflamed. Maybe they die of inflammation. Why? Because they haven't the vitamin D that calms that inflammatory response. If you drive a car, you have two things that are really important. You have your accelerator pedal because you need an engine that's going to produce movement. But you need a brake. You need to be able to stop the movement. So we have the same clever system, the series 2 prostaglandins, producing inflammation when we first get a virus, for instance, to fight it. And the 1s and the 3s that calm everything down together with these T-regulatory cells. Mm. Uh, they found in Asia that people who had low vitamin D were 10 times as likely to become very ill with COVID or die than people who had adequate levels. And I would say the adequate levels were not optimal. They were only adequate. And there was a factor of 10 difference. So why weren't people not told, go out in the sunshine? Why were people locked up in their houses when COVID came along? Well, what recommendations do you have for people with autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis? Obviously, diet is pretty important because we don't want to be generating antibodies against uh, non-digested proteins, which can, through molecular mimicry, attack our bodies. But what other recommendations would you have? Well, you talk about molecular mimicry. We make antibodies to those, and unfortunately, if we've got the wrong tissue type, those antibodies affect us. So it's really important to use probiotics or live yogurt or equivalent in your gut because they will take the food and they will take the residential accommodation away from bad ones. So there's so much competition between good and bad. Make sure you've lots of good ones in there and they will protect you from this molecular mimicry. So that's a big part of of working against autoimmune diseases. Using vitamin D is crucial. The Epsom salt baths are keeping away from lectins, having plenty of magnesium in the diet. Most people with multiple sclerosis are magnesium deficient. It, it, not one thing. It's not like you take a, a wonderful pill that solves your problem. It's a whole lot of things all working together to help you. Uh, usually multiple sclerosis it involves methylation problems as well as sulfation problems. So you need to deal with the B12 folic acid, B2, etc. for the methylation. 
And B2 is often forgotten by people talking about methylation, and yet it's the kingpin of the whole system. And you need your molybdenum, B2, B5, omega-3 fats that help you make the sulfate and your bath and Epsom salts. Uh, so those are vital things that you need to do. Uh, other than vitamin C, what nutrition can help us when we have an infection? When you have an infection, you need far more vitamin C than you normally need. Normally, if you take too much vitamin C, you'll get diarrhea. But suddenly you have an infection and you can take vastly more. Maybe usually you cope with 500 milligrams a day and suddenly you can deal with, two, with 20 grams a day if it's something serious. So you need to up your vitamin C a lot. When you start getting loose stools, just reduce it a little bit. Don't chuck it. Just reduce it a little bit. Um, and then as you recover, you find you have to keep reducing your vitamin C back to whatever your comfort level is. And people vary enormously with how much they should take per day in normal times. Part of the reason is a lot of people have amalgam fillings, which are half mercury in their teeth. And the vitamin C gets used up, escorting that mercury out of the body. Well, it's terribly important to get rid of the mercury, but it doesn't leave so much vitamin C to work against infection. So someone who has a mouthful of amalgams will need vastly more vitamin C per day. When you take them out, if you do it carefully, after some months, the person's capacity to cope with vitamin C drops because they don't need so much. Uh, and at this stage, of course, their ability to fight off viruses improves greatly. Yeah, I have a friend, Richard Chang, that was in Wuhan uh, when the virus broke out and the Dutch contributed two tons of vitamin C. Very successfully, he treated many patients with vitamin C. They all survived and they got well quicker. But vitamin C has been studied for long time to help with infections and some people say sepsis and many other conditions but you mentioned uh, mercury and amalgams because each time we brush our teeth if we have such fillings uh, vapors go into the brain where they be, uh, can stay permanently being very difficult to get out and aluminum if we drink out of aluminum cans or use deodorants might get in our bodies as well what do we do if we have these issues other than stopping the source well, stopping the source is the obvious thing, isn't it? Get rid of them, but make sure you go to a dentist who knows what he's doing. Otherwise, you might absorb more. Uh, but there are useful things. Chlorella pyridoxa is good at getting out mercury. Um, there are chemical, nasty chemicals that do it, but we found that uh, it, these were just as effective. Selenium is important because the reason mercury is toxic is because it sits in enzymes where selenium ought to be. So the more selenium you have to compete with the mercury, the better. Although, uh, you have to be careful with selenium. You don't want a lot of selenium every day. I mean, 100 micrograms is enough, maybe 50. That becomes toxic if you take excessive amounts. But selenium, vitamin C, zinc, um, Corella pyridoxa, and there are other possibilities, but they're pretty good at mopping up that mercury. So there was um, someone in one place who had 
terminal cancer patients. And he said, it's not just a matter of getting rid of the mercury fillings in your teeth. You've got to get rid of the teeth because that mercury has got into the rest of the teeth. Uh, and apparently that was successful with these very, very sick people. Um, normally, one would hope one didn't have to get rid of one's teeth. <laughs> but if there are certain supplements we should avoid, obviously processed fake supplements, you know, we should use companies that have some kind of quality control and some of the supplements they might use right-handed rather than left-handed. But what supplements should we avoid? Avoid supplements that have carrageenan in, for a start. That's extremely inflammatory and associated with heart disease, ulcerative colitis, and um, cancer. So anything with carrageenan, absolutely no. Anything with aspartame, anything with false colorings. You know, a vitamin pill, should, a multivitamin should look yellow because of the vitamin D2. What you find is they put so little in, they then put some yellow dye in, to sunset yellow, to cover uh. up the fact they put so little. So you need to go to a decent brand, but you can't assume that because it's a generally decent brand, everything they produce is suitable because it isn't. Personally, I would avoid anything with boron in because it depletes vitamin B2. And if you deplete vitamin B2, that affects your energy, it affects your sulfation, it affects your methylation, it affects your use of vitamin B6, so you don't make hormones and enzymes. So um, any supplement, and some of the reputable company, companies that are otherwise reputable uh, include boron in their supplements, and that's, as far as I'm concerned, a complete no-no. You need to have one folic acid because many of us do not have the right genetic makeup of the MTHFR uh, SNP gene to convert it to you know, methylfolate. So when I see that in a supplement, I write to the company telling them to change it. Yeah, um, but there again, MTHFR is a vitamin B2 enzyme. And a lot of people think methylation is just about B12, folic acid, and B6. No, the B6 won't work without the B2 to activate it. And um, the MTHFR won't work without B2. Yes, you can have genetic problems, but at least help your body by providing the nutrients that it needs. Because most of us with genetic problems, the genes are not totally useless. They will work up to a point, and we can nudge them to do better with the right nutrition. We are running out of time. Is there one piece of advice on food that applies to everyone? I assume that would be organic food. So one piece of advice and tell people how to get a hold of you. Uh, one piece of advice would be eat like your great-great-grandma, um, i.e. real food, not things from factories. I think that's probably the biggest thing you can say. And, yes, I do. How do they get hold of me? Um, my website is www.nutritionandallergyclinic.co.uk. My email is margaret at nutritionandallergyclinic.co.uk. Most people get hold of me through something called Nutritionist Resource, which is online. Uh, and then they send an email through that to me. So that's probably rather than trying to remember um you know, long emails and um, website addresses, nutritionist resource 
is good and and I do see people around the world um obviously it's nice to meet people but talking on Skype and um talking uh, on the Zoom and Teams and all that lot um it works pretty well well I want to thank that was a wealth of information and many things I did not know and it's so much information uh, so I want to thank you. I ask the audience to use this information, uh, listen to what she's got to say, share it with your friends, share it with your doctor, your work under the advice of your doctor, share this information so we can all get better, and above all, be well. We got the power to change the world. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.